0: We're in a uh, period of text, to be honest, that we would be more likely to read quickly through because it's that space in between, that space in between the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection that begins the next chapter. I know that's a spoiler alert, but the uh, that space in between is often overlooked and it really shouldn't be, of course. So, So take a look at it with me, picking it up in verse 55. <clears throat> Excuse me. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministered to him and were looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of a rock, out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Apparently, James and John's mother has gone elsewhere. And on the next day, according to this text, which follows the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, that how the deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people that he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have your guard, or a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tube secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Will you pray with me, please? Settle our hearts into you, Lord, still them before you. Create right now within each of us the fertile soil, Lord, in our hearts for the planting of your word, that it would do more, Lord, than just simply sprout, that it would do more than simply bud, but that it would produce fruit. So, Lord, I pray today that for each of us, you would minister in a way we could get, that we could understand. Lord, redeem every minute, and on this this Communion Sunday when we prepare ourselves to sit at your table. Lord God, please, let our hearts be rent and ready. Lord, let our ears be available to hear, our minds sponges to receive, our hearts pliable clay for your shaping. Oh God, please, today, speak fluent us, minister to each one of us, right where we're at. Address those issues, Lord, that are in our hearts, those things, Lord, that cause us to to be challenged and and discouraged and questioned. Answer them, Lord, I pray. Meet us at weakness, Lord, and be our strength. Meet us at confusion and be our truth. Lord, meet us at discord and be our peace. Reveal yourself, Lord, speak into each of our lives exactly how we need to hear you today. As we now pray, together as a family, Lord, unite us as a family under you, our Father in heaven. We commit ourselves to you now, in Jesus' name. Amen. And I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. Not a man. It doesn't matter how many titles or how many badges or how many letters. In the end of it all, either you're going to stand on this book or you're going to trust men. It doesn't matter how it works or what it is they stand for. You're going to have to trust either a consortium of men or this book. Having said that, this is where we're at now in Matthew 27. It is after 3 p.m. It is after 3 p.m. because at 3 p.m. was the time when Jesus would say then, Father, unto your hands I commit my spirit. And then, telestai it is finished, paid in full. And there he gives up his spirit. Now it's after the quaking earth and the tearing veil and the splitting rocks and all the earth now is writhed and sobbed in grief at the death of its creator. The dust now is about to succumb to the stillness of the Sabbath. All of that manic, grieving behavior starts to settle before us as we are now, in essence, paralyzed by the law, unable to walk more than, in essence, the distance between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem. We can only, wow, we can't even work. We can only wait. And for us, it represents the death of hope, the finality of life as we know it. It's the point of all of this is that unaware that Jesus is about to create the greatest miracle in history, and they're on the very cusp of it. Although promised, no anticipation or expectation seems to be birthed in their hearts, even though Jesus is given it in alliteration through that of the temple and of Jonah. You would say in Matthew 12, I believe it's verse 40, that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the fish, the great fish, so will be the Son of Man. But he says then and more clearly up in Caesarea Philippi, the northern tip almost, if you will, of Israel, in Matthew 16:21, I believe is what it is, when he begins to show them after, after being declared the Messiah, that he must go to Jerusalem and must suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and then be raised again on the third day. Uh, the next chapter, Matthew 17:22, Jesus is in Galilee. And there in Galilee, while they were in Galilee, Jesus openly says to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. In Matthew 20 then, in verse 18, as they're heading down to Jerusalem, from the northern tip to Galilee to heading down, Jesus says in Matthew 20 2018, "Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is being betrayed in the chief priests, to the chief priests, and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death deliver him to the Gentiles and scourge him and crucify him and on the third day he will rise again. Three different times he openly declares as well as in alliteration, he openly declares he is about to die and raise again. But for us, we don't get that. What we get is that Jesus, what we get is what our eyes are telling us and what our eyes are telling us is that Jesus is clearly dead and now the Sabbath is here. And that Sabbath forces us to be still. We can't walk, we can't work, we can't light a fire. And now here we are on the longest day we've ever lived because on this day, on this longest day, we spar. We spar with the daunting hows and the whys of our future. Let's be honest, at this point, because as far as we are concerned, that Jesus is gone. And because Jesus is gone, all points of our life have been left devastated. Devastated. Because our whole life, we've given up to follow him. Our whole life was about just — you know it's like the one thing we have memorized for the last three and a half years is the back of that guy's face, because we know that when he walked and he, we were going to go behind him, that's what we knew. And for three and a half years, everything has been provided for, we stayed where he, where he stayed, we went wherever he went, and if we were hungry, we were fed. And now every area of our life is decimated before us. And I just have to ask myself, if the Lord were to leave, how many areas of my life would change? How many areas of my life would be that devastated? How many areas of my life are not just leaning lightly on Jesus, but they're at the point where all weight is being pressed upon Him so that in any move I feel... That any challenge now I'm, I'm taking with him, the brunt, is there any part of my life, any part of my life, that if the Lord were to be vacant for a moment I would, or a day, I would be aware of it? Or do I compartmentalize things to basically to make him the, the butler that I can ring the bell when I need it? Because those are two very, very different things. Jesus is either the end of my searching or somehow he's the means. But for these people, he was everything. And because of that, everything's different. You know what the crazy part about it is? All of their inchless adding worry, all of their grieving and rising and feeling that pain, all of the shock and confusion, all of the ulcer creating what-if scenarios that are being played in our head, They're going to be completely irrelevant when they come face to face and collide with a risen Jesus in just a day and so. But for this day, we don't know that. We have the privilege of knowing the story. We have the privilege of knowing where the next chapter is going to go, but they don't know it. Even though they've been told they don't know it. And what they don't realize at this moment is they're being maneuvered for a For a miracle. At this particular moment here in this we have three characters that are in essence going to be three, a trinity of characters if you will that are about to play into this situation with the bridegroom. And interesting as I think about a groom and all of the weddings we've had the honor of doing over the years hundreds of them. I look and I see this and I think to love and to honor and to protect seems so common within the vows and yet What we're going to see with these three is that's exactly the issue. Love and honor and protection. Uh, Protect seems like such a weird thing, and it certainly will be, because it's not for Jesus, but it's against him. We'll look at it as we dive into our characters. Verse 55. And many women. Many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were looking on from afar. Many tells us it wasn't all. Interesting. Have you ever wondered who sponsored Jesus' ministry? Do you think he started cashing in on those things that the wise men gave him when he was a baby? Well, there's an argument for that. But it is interesting because the Bible makes clear in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verse 2, that there were certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, by the way, we read out of whom. He had cast seven demons. There's Joanna, the wife of Huzza, Herod's servant, and Susanna, I love that name, and many others who provided for him from their substance. Somewhere down the line, and this is always a weird thought to me, that these people were in such a wretched state prior to that, but somehow in their wretched state, they seemed to have substance financially, marine resources. And yet in all of that, Jesus had touched them and he'd revolutionized their lives. Um, they were demon possessed. They were racked with infirmities. And yet in all of that, somewhere Jesus and they had encountered each other and they were forever different. And it wasn't just that they'd been healed or just from this point on, they weren't spitting grease soup and levitating like they're on a rotisserie. At this point, they had chosen to give their life to follow him and it became clear because they were investing in him. And here we read, by the way, at least three characters, Mary, Mary, and Mom. Mary, Mary Magdalene, again, who Luke 8 told us, she, out of whom had been cast seven demons. And a woman named Mary, who was the mother of Joseph. And oh, here it says James and Joseph. Now, it's interesting, because the natural place I would go to that is when Jesus is speaking in his own synagogue at Nazareth, at the beginning of his ministry and they get offended and they're like, isn't that the carpenter's son? Isn't that the mom? We know this We know this guy's family. Who does this guy think he is? Who, by the way, then they start quoting brothers, four of which, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, of which two of them, of course, are named here, uh, and his sisters, which tells us that Jesus had at least a six-pack of siblings. Makes it really weird to think of the Virgin Mary at that point. Nonetheless, the point is, is it appears to be that that actually is Jesus' mother, but not, n- not listed this way here, but rather the mother of his brothers. Regardless of what it was, there were three women. And these three women at this particular point, what are they doing? They're simply watching. And yet God takes special note to put them in scripture, if you will, to herald them as something really great. Now I remind you, we know where chapter 28 is going to go. They don't know where chapter 28 is going to go. And so what you have are three women who all they know is the person that they've given their love to to choose to follow is dead before them and they, don't, they would rather be with a dead Lord in love than they would be with the living around them at this moment. And what we have in the simplest sense are faithful people and their representatives and these women. Now, consider the fact this is the Middle East 2,000 years ago, and the Bible spends an awful lot of time highlighting women. You can go to much of the Middle East today and try to find anything that highlights any women nonetheless, and here it is that they're in essence heroes. And I look at this and I think, well, what can I learn from these women? Because they will provide something for this miracle. Each party from this contributes. Well, what they'll provide is a witness. See, what God always wants with his miracles are people to, to witness them, to, ex- to not only experience them, but to be able to observe them on another person so that they can testify of it. Let's be honest. When something happens to us, we do not have the luxury of complete objectivity because we're experiencing while we're seeing. But when we see it in front of us, we have the privilege then of being able to see it and have a much clearer testimony. Now there are certainly situations we can speak about where we are greater witness of course by having experienced it for instance how has Jesus changed your life that is your testimony to give but these women their motivation has to be clearly love but they are now and hear me in this they are simply positioning themselves out of love to observe what are they observing do they think they ex- do we expect them to to actually expect to see a risen Lord? Apparently not. If you get to the Gospel of John and you'll see his conversation with Mary Magdalene in John 20, it's clear and obvious she wasn't expecting him. She looks at him and thinks he's the gardener. But they would rather, again, anoint him and love him, even in that state. And I get this, and here's the thing as I learn from them. I well, you really got to be there. Often we want to actually experience God's miracles or watch God's miracles, but we really don't want to be in the place that is necessary to experience them. And here, these women, all they want to be is near Jesus. They don't understand. They don't know what's going on. But what they do know is they can clearly see where Jesus is, at least the body of Jesus, and they want to be near Him. And because they want to be near Him at this point, them simply being there is going to make them, in essence then, the witness for his resurrection, as a matter of fact, when you get to the Gospel of John, it's clear Jesus shows up to the girls. And I realize how often it is, and how important it is to simply just be there. It is so easy to kind of ditch out of stuff, and let's face it, here in the 21st century, as we're sort of living here in a, such a contemporary environment as something like London, it is so easy to find a million reasons not to be in fellowship. And let's face it, in our head, they're all legitimate. And yet we know scripture tells us in Hebrews not to forsake the assembling of believers. And we say, well, you know, I'm cool with the assembly of believers. What I'll do instead is I'll just, you know, chill with a few friends, watch something for a moment, you know, listen to a couple of Christian songs and we'll go out and get a pizza. But that's really not the same thing. Because part of what church is, is not supposed to be that we're all spectators. It isn't that the experts speak and everybody else just simply sits like a theater. Ultimately, we make ourselves available to be used and to make ourselves available to be used to serve each other. Well, you kind of have to be there to do that. And we learn that. I mean, it's a very simple motivation. It's a very simple point, but it's a simple point we need. And maybe that will be you today. You'll be in that place today where you're just observing and you're kind of just checking it out. Well, I warn you, you put yourself in the place where God is. Let's well, face he said he's everywhere, but in regards to where he manifests and it seems clear, well, you're going to definitely see things. Well, then we read our second character. Now, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. This is verse 57. One uh, evening had come. There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. Now, we do read an awful lot, or at least a little bit more than we read in this particular text. And we read, though, that this man went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. And then in verse 60, he laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock and then rolled a large stone <coughs> excuse me, against the door of the tomb and departed. Now, for what it's worth, in the Gospel of Mark, it tells us this in Mark fifteen forty three, that he was a prominent council member. That means he was a politician. In a religious environment, he was a prominent council member who we read who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went to Pilate and asked. We read in Luke chapter 23, verse 50, that he was a good and just man. And that he had not consented to the decision and the deed that happened to Jesus. Now I remind you, one of the requirements within Jewish jurisprudence was that for the pronouncing of guilty or the condemnation of a criminal that somehow was to receive the death penalty, it had to be unanimous among the council. What becomes clear in the Gospel of Luke is that this particular guy, though a council member, in other words, though a voting member, had not consented to the death of Jesus, which again would have ruled it a mistrial. And we read, of course, he was from the town of Arimathea. Any of you ever been to Arimathea? Didn't think so, so we kind of read past it. Bruno's like, have we been? Well, some of you are familiar with the fact that Har, because there's a hard H on that, Haramite, Har means hill. Rama, like Ramatayim, was the home place of Samuel, and it was the place where David went when fleeing from Saul. It was one of the first places he went. Interesting. It's likely that's where he was from. Was from this hill. And for what it means, it means the hill of the the high hill of the watcher. It tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus in John nineteen thirty eight, but secretly for fear of the Jews. But it tells us also in John, for what it's worth, John 19, verse 39, that he came with a second man, a man named Nicodemus. Demus means people. Nikos means, like Nike, means victory. It means victory over the people. And interesting, he was the one, of course, if you're familiar with the gospel of John, Jesus, uh, we call him Nick at night because he shows up at night and asks, tries to confront Jesus on a couple issues for his own yearning soul, for which we get that beautiful text, for God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son that who would ever believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. That was during the conversation Jesus was having with Nicodemus. Nicodemus seems to have gotten it because he comes with him. And what we read, by the way, is he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a 100 pounds, uh, for, it's, for it's worth about 40 kilos. And they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen and spices, as was the custom of the Jews, to bury him. And then we read it, the place... This is also in John. This is 1941. Now the place in which he was crucified there, there was a garden. In the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So they laid Jesus because of the Jewish preparation day for the tomb was nearby. So let's get this a little bit put together here, and let's get to our second character. And for what it's worth, there is a text 700 years prior in Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 9, where it tells us that they made a grave with the wicked, but rich at his death, because he had done no violence, there was any deceit in his mouth. Kind of like this cool little riddle, if you will, that the guy would die like a really horrible, rotten Filthy, poor criminal, but he would be buried with rich people. And that seems kind of strange, especially when you have 700 years to sit on that before it would happen exactly as Isaiah promised. So, our first character was a group of gals, girls that just loved him, that had helped sponsor his ministry, if you will, and in doing so, they just didn't want to be away. They didn't want to be distant. They will have to be, by the way, though. Uh, Once the Sabbath comes, they will have to go back to their home. And imagine how weird that would be to sit quietly and stare at each other in shock and in horror because your whole life is never going to be the same. No, they have no idea that tomorrow their whole life is never going to be the same, but for good. They're that close to a miracle and they can't see it. All they see is emptiness and defeat, failure, failure. And there are women sitting there with broken hearts, out of love. And then there's this guy, Joe. Joe, by the way, shows up with another guy, remember, Nick. See, well, Joe and Nick, Joseph and Nicodemus. And they show up and they say, you know what we really want to do? We want to give this guy a proper burial. And there it is, just as Isaiah promised. And so they take the body of Jesus, his Pilate granted, and they wrap it tightly in linen which tells us that jesus if you will entered into the world and kind of entered out of the world in the same manner wrapped in linen cloth the proper burial could last as many as seven days and for seven days you would take this uh, linen cloth you would wrap it around someone and then you would cover it in roughly your body weight in aloe and myrrh. Aloe, as you're probably aware of, is sort of a gooey thing. Good for your skin, of course. You still use it for sunburn and that kind of thing. And myrrh, because it is something, interestingly enough, that doesn't release its scent unless it is ground, unless it is crushed. Interesting, because certainly that's the case here. And that, by the way, releases a rather strong uh, odor that in essence tries to help mask the smell of putrescence as a body starts to decay. And so you honor a person with this. For seven days you can do this, and this is why the women will show up after Sabbath to do the same thing. They'll want to be able to do the same thing they saw. But consider the fact, if you took a person's body, and you wrapped it in linen cloth, and then you covered it in gooey aloe and myrrh, and then you, and then you put it in a tomb, what's going to happen to those linen cloths and that goo over three days, over two days? It's going to harden. Have you ever thought about that when it came to Jesus? that they are providing a greater miracle for this. But what ultimately they're going to do is they're really just seeking to do this out of honor, if you look at it. What they're trying to do is they're trying to honor the person that they've become a disciple of. And so out of honor, what they're going to ultimately provide is the platform for the miracle. They provide the stage, if you think about it, by giving what they gave. They, this is what I have. I'm not going to need it. They have no idea Jesus is only borrowing it for a weekend, if you think about it. so. But, but ultimately, it appears to me that this guy's willing to forfeit his his tomb and so here he is he puts this thing in and then and he wraps you know they wrap jesus and, and remember at this point jesus is completely dead and they put him and they put him in the tomb now that whole thing is going to become like a cocoon so when jesus ultimately when the guys show up and they look in and they see the linen cloth what they're seeing is a cast is a cast that seems to have everything but the body was wrapped around so that's kind of weird. So it's like, no, exactly. First of all, it's more than just taking a body and stripping it, which would still be weird. But it's the idea that it's sort of like, Jesus had to pop out of this thing, you know, and then it's like, and that would be hard, to, that would be impossible to do without damaging the structure and the form of it. Because when they see the linen cloth, linen they see them in their place. So you see, in essence, this cocoon, and you're like, hmm, woman's really strange here. I mean, that's part of the fun of this. So here are these guys out of honor and wanting to honor the Lord, that in honoring him, what they do is they just do what you would do to honor somebody. Now understand, they didn't do anything original, or, but they did something outstanding. They did what they understood you do to honor a person like this. And the way that you honor them is give them a proper burial. So in the first case, out of love, it would provide a witness. And then out of honor, it would provide the platform. Now, those actually seem to make sense, don't they? I mean, ultimately, you can see how people that love the Lord are being maneuvered, ultimately, blocked, if you will, and they're staging and choreographed into places where when Jesus raises, this whole thing is going to blow wide open on them, and it's going to birth a hope that they could never have imagined. The strange part is the third set of characters. Look at it with me. So then it says from there, <coughs> excuse me, verse 61, Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite of the tomb. That is really important. What that tells us, they knew the location. I remind you, it was very near where Jesus was crucified. Verse 62, on the next day, the following day of preparation, the chief priests, the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember while he was still alive, this deceiver said, After three days, I will rise again. And this seems really strange to me. Because it seems like the only people that actually have a really clear understanding of Jesus' promise were his opponents. Did you notice that? None of the other people are going, you know, but you know, he did say he was going to raise again on the third day. Remember, he said that about Jonah. He said that in regards to the temple. He said that three different times, once up in Caesarea Philippi, once in Galilee, and once on the way down. He clearly told us he was going to, I mean, he said all of these other things were going to happen. Excuse me, and they all did that not only would be handed over to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, but ultimately, then he would be taken and he would be handed over to the Gentiles. And then the Gentiles would not only kill him, they would crucify him. And all of those things were exactly like Jesus had promised. But those things, even though they're clearly coming to pass, they're not as weird as the last of them, the completely unscientific concept that he's actually going to get back up again. So we hear, yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true, and that's true, and that's true, but this is too much. And we see that a lot in our own walk, don't we? We read these texts and we go, oh yeah, clearly that was fulfilled, and we clearly see that that came to pass, and we see this come to pass, but this thing that's going to directly spur hope in my life, this is where we've draw the line, and it's beyond it for me. Isn't that strange? We can even look back and see how God in our own lives have transformed and stepped in and heroically delivered us from thing after thing after thing. And we can look back and go, it is not a graveyard of mistakes, but rather it is a trophy case of God's grace. And I look back and I see these things, but then I look to the future, how can I not have some form of optimism or rampant optimism when that's what I see behind me? Unless what I'm much more familiar with, to be honest, are the things, the pain that I experienced in between. Could you imagine if these girls, a week from this point, remember the Sabbath pain more than they do the resurrection of the Sunday? How weird that would be. But we do it. We remember the pain of those Sabbath moments, but we're still, and we don't know what to do, and we're completely overcome and overwhelmed because we just don't. What? How do? What do I? What do I do now? Because we just don't realize that we're only a day away from a miracle like this. And we just keep waiting and hoping, maybe, something. But Jesus isn't going to toss us a bone. Jesus is coming in all full of flesh and bone before us. So what are these guys doing? We have, in essence, the loyal, the faithful, and their love... We have then the influential, if you will, and the respect and honor. And now we have religion and its representatives. Now, let me define religion as it would be here, often why we're hesitant to use the word out in public. Because if we're going to be honest with it, the profane face of religion in the sight of a secular world is a simple cocktail of two ingredients. It's self-led politics and, in essence, a relevant tradition. So, you know, I love that you've got these big old buildings and they have really cold, you know, nobody puts, you know, windows like that in their house. Nobody has ceilings this high. How do you keep it warm? We're aware of that. So you guys sit on these really ridiculous wooden benches and listen to a guy talk forever. How irrelevant. How ridiculous. And you add these traditions to it and the politics and be like, who wants that? I don't want that. And I'm sure you don't either. Of course, religious, in its simple sense, means devoted. And for that, I would pray we'd be the most religious people on the planet. Hey, irrelevant to culture, I'm actually okay with because the culture is manic and insane. The church is not supposed to be relevant to the culture. The church is supposed to, the same way that a drowning man, we do not need to be waterlogged to become relevant to a drowning man. What we need to be is floating. We need to be actually different. Irrelevant to the need, well, that's unexcusable, inexcusable, but otherwise... So what do they do? They're typified by these things. They set a guard because they really don't want a miracle and they don't want a movement and they don't want anything that rumors like it. In essence, consider this. What they are in the simplest sense is they are the guardians of the status quo. That's what they are. And can I just say, if I can dare say this, and I'm pulling my American card to do this, we live in a world of that right here. People are so afraid to step out of the status quo. I mean, on one side of it, if we fail, then everyone's going to turn and laugh at us. And, of course, we don't want that. Who wants to be humiliated like that? But on the other side, if we achieve anything that even remotely smells like greatness, well, now we're being grandstandy, and now we're being sort of self-exalting, even if what we're just doing is doing something really well. And then from that, people are going to point and hate us, and we don't want to be pointed and hated at, or we don't want to be pointed and laughed at. So we are in this crazy environment where we don't want to be awkward and awkward's even just near the edge of the status quo. It's not even outside of the status quo, let's be honest. And so what you're like is hey, 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 don't you dare talk like that. Don't you don't share you don't you don't bring out your Bible in public and you don't use the name Jesus unless you're actually kind of cursing. Then I guess it's okay. And and you know, and don't you dare say that somebody's wrong, because if you say they're wrong, you either hate them and that's hate speech, or you're afraid of them and you're a phobe. But one way or another you can't just disagree. Now, who do you think is setting all these things up? And they say, here's what the status quo is. Don't you dare rock the boats. And that's where, oddly enough, the religious leaders are at this moment. We do not want things to change because right now we've got a kingdom and we're very comfortable on earth with it. And granted, it's only on earth, but at least it's suiting us well. And as a matter of fact, so much so, did you notice that they are using the best of the world's resources at this moment to make it happen? Have you noticed that? At this particular moment, they go to Pilate, and at Pilate's disposal, there's a legion. And at this point, they know that they can actually not just use their own... And they have temple guards. I mean, you could go, by the way, to places like the Vatican. You'll find temple guards. They have the cool, these really cool outfits. They kind of look like something from a playing card. But, but these guys, it's like, hey, we have our own guards, but they're nothing like the Roman guards. I mean, the Roman guards, there's a really stiff punishment. If a guy fell asleep... While he was on guard, they would actually not just kill him, they would kill what family and what city he came from. So imagine this guy was from, let's say, you know, some place like, you know, like Croydon, and he fell asleep. All of Croydon would be then killed as a result of it. So as a matter of fact, as a result of that, when the Romans were kind of keeping their guard four at a time, three hours at a time, they would call it a watch. That's what we have first, second, third, and fourth watch. But if a guy looked like he was starting to nod off at all, they would take a fire of a torch and set his this cute little skirt on fire, because nothing keeps you awake like that part of your body on fire. Well, Well, all of that said, this is why Paul would say, by the way, that we should be alert and awake and watchful, that we would keep our garments, because that was a metaphor that was clear to everybody then. So these religious leaders at this moment have the best of the world's resources, the crackest of soldiers, if you will, available to them. And so Pilate, they go, hey, you know what? This guy actually promised that he would raise again. Clearly that's nonsense. So let's actually put a guard up there to make sure that nobody can fabricate that kind of story. Listen, let's put a guard up there to guarantee that the only way this could happen is a miracle. Isn't that what they're saying without saying it? And that's the beauty of this situation is that they are making it impossible for it to be fabricated. And this is what God allows with people who often are often against him, is that what I learned from this is that God often elevates or establishes or positions his opposition to, in essence, to temper the soldiers of God. And I remember, I'm not talking about people that are killing other people, but people that are preaching the gospel we call that, by the way, resistance training. If you've ever worked out and you wanted to build muscle mass, the best way to do it is resistance training. That's where your muscle wants to go one way, but it has resistance against it. Funny, we don't like that when it comes to us in our spirit, but that's exactly what God's doing. He's buffing us up spiritually in resistance training. But what happens as a result of all of it, if you think about it, is it not only tempers the soldier of the Lord, But it also turns them, the opposition, into trampolines that only catapult the glory of God's work before a greater audience when it actually occurs. See, because what happens ultimately is you're going to have these crack soldiers. You're going to take four guys, you know, so you've got Arnold and you've got like Stallone, you know, and you've got pick your other two, whoever you want in there. You know, and, and all of that, you know, you could put the rock in there if you want to put him in there. And, and you know, and then ultimately you take these guys, and you can even have the guy that's the English guy, right? I've got a side of his face. What's his name? You know, he's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Anyways, you'll, you'll recognize. He's in, like, The Mechanic and those kind of movies. Well, anyways. Yeah, you have that guy in that too, right? All right? And so you've got these four guys. I mean, you're taking guys that, that aren't going to be easily swayed. So when these guys... Faint like pansies in front of an angel. It's not just like four guys that were like even the temple guards. These were the four toughest, meanest guys you can find who probably thought they had the weirdest cush job ever. We're going to guard a dead body. That's going to be pretty easy. It's only going to come from one direction, it isn't coming from this one. And what they're doing in all of this is they're establishing things in such a way so that when the miracle happens, clearly it's a miracle. Can, there's no possible way, as we read this, we think, well, clearly the disciples must have stole the body because the guards themselves would have prevented that. Now they put a seal. A seal is much like a police line. It's not just a wax seal on the corner of a stone that's 10 tons. What they have is they have cardened off an entire area because when they cardon off the area, this makes it a lot easier to defend. And what that means is the moment you break past that line, you are the, the Roman guard is free to not just kill you but kill you in whatever creative way they design. So one of those four guys has a horn. He has a horn so he can summon more soldiers if necessary. But it's normally thought this is nuts. First of all, there's a dead guy, and then there's these you know these goofy Galilean guys on the other side of it. But if they all tried to gather together and make this happen, all twelve of them, we should be able to. Any one of us should be able to take them out. But if that be the case, we could call this. And by the way, that will not be once they're this close to us. That will be if they're basically to the end of those pews, because that's how many area we carted off. So if you break that seal, well, at that point I can call for, for uh, you know for my backup. Now consider that. And the reason I say that is, is that this would have actually appear like somewhere someone's getting the better hand on God because somebody is openly declaring that, you know, they're, they're an atheist or they're really antagonistic against God and they have some kind of element of their lifestyle or some value within their life that they just think that God completely or does, that God does stand against. And, and somewhere that becomes their God so much that they actually have the, the brass to turn to God and say, God, how dare you tell me that I can't do this thing I want to do. But then they seem to get the world's resources at their disposal. And they have the money, and they have the, the media, and they have all the other things backing them up in all of this. And yet in all of this, they have no idea that these guys are going to faint at the sight of an angel who's going to roll away a 10-ton stone without any, seams, without any problem whatsoever. And on this day... This day that, well, we're now we're here, you know, it's the Sabbath. And because it's the Sabbath, well, this is our wilderness day. We wander through deserts of shock and horror and wastelands. If I just don't understand because Jesus is gone at this moment and we just don't get how he could possibly come back. And at this moment, beloved, we are an inch away from a miracle and we can't even see it. So what do we learn from this to go to Prayer. Because we prepare ourselves now for communion. Well, if you really think about it, what they're actually doing is living outside of a hope, but having the opportunity to hope. It tells us in Romans 8.24, who hopes for what they see? If you see it, then it's senseless to hope for it, because it's absolutely in front of you. What you hope for is what you can't see. And he tells us that really looks like what real faith is. It's the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen, Romans or Hebrews tells us. And that hope, according to the book of Hebrews 6.19, is an anchor for our souls. Now consider that. Your soul, that part where all of your appetites are birthed, where your dreams and desires and value systems are based, that soul where only real peace could originate through the presence of the one who is our peace. Have you had your soul lately tossed around like you're just in... I don't know if you've ever seen something tossed around in the waves or if you've ever been tossed around in the waves. You're helpless. I've certainly been in situations where being tossed in the waves, man, you realize you are a tiny little speck in a bucket of a gigantic thing that you are, are, there's no possible way you in and of yourself or I in and of myself could possibly even not only put a dent but could even use all of the strength that I could muster to do anything at that point. And you are helpless. Is that where you're at at the moment? You don't see it in front of you so you think that it must not be because if you can't see it then it must not be. My question is, if that's where you are at this moment, are you still willing to commit to be there? To be there because so these, these women are about to see something they've never thought they'd see. Are you there to commit to make sure that you're going to honor God even when you don't see it? And even if the opposition seems to be gaining traction, even if they seem to be elevated, even if they seem to be prominent and the world seems to be following them, will you still be there and honor that God of yours? Because you can be confident of this. He who began that good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He told me that. And if he could save me from hell and deliver me from the things I've already seen deliverance from, then I am an absolute nutter to think that he wouldn't finish what he's begun. I feel like the hard part's already passed. Of course, I've just yet to learn that there are more things that, uh, that the Lord has to do. But can I be like these religious leaders that are guardians of the status quo? How about you? Where you're like, you know what? This is good enough. You know, look at you know I'm not freaking out. I'm not suicidal you know, I've been, or, you know, I'm not beating everyone up, or I'm not getting wasted, or waking up next to total strangers. You know, things are good in comparison to where you've been. Are you going to try to guard the status quo when what God wants to do is not just tighten up the shack that's your life, but now turn it into a cathedral? Because in a situation like this, you're going to be one of these three people you're either going to stand against him and say, no, 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 don't do it. Or you're going to put yourself in the place where you're like, Lord, I'm going to honor you and I'm going to trust you anyways. Because soon, and I don't know when, the Lord's going to do something so beautiful and profound and it may not be exactly the way you would write the script, let's face it. Even though Jesus had warned us, none of them seemed to expect it to be exactly as he played it out. So maybe things are rough. And they are riddled with challenges. And maybe the road is rocky. The question is today, could we say it like Job, even if he slay me, I'm going to praise him. We prepare now for communion. And in preparing for communion, understand what's being said here. First of all, we need to know this. The gospel is half the story, I'm sorry, the death of Jesus is half the story of the gospel. Because his death says that he paid for all of our sins. When he said paid in full, it is finished, he finished it. But the other half of the story tells us that he was to raise again because what that tells us is not just that the old world we knew dies, but that there's a whole new life to embrace under his lordship and letting him be the architect of our reinvention. The question is, are are we cool with the cross in the sense of letting him kill the parts we hate? but we're really weak on the resurrection because that's the part that says there's a whole new life to live now. I don't know about you, but for me it's a lot easier to take the bullet than it is to actually live for someone because that takes constant commitment. And the Bible tells us that we have a choice to make, that the price that Jesus paid for our sins at the cross was out of his voluntary out of his own volition. And in that volition, Jesus then gives us the privilege of volition too. He gives us the option of choice. He paid the bill for our sins. Have you accepted his gift? But when he rose again and now lives forevermore, are you willing to submit to his lordship? Because having Jesus rescue you from hell but assuming he doesn't actually want a relationship with you, it is actually the wrong Jesus. And at this particular moment, you're kind of in a Sabbath moment where you have to make that choice yourself. If you've said yes to Jesus, to his gift, his death on the cross, but also his resurrection to be the Lord, and if you will then, the love of your life, then I want to challenge you today, as I would me. Are you busy looking for hope strings but not resting in faith. Are you in that place where you're quickly putting yourself in positions to actually hear the enemy more than you would putting yourself in a position to observe his miracle? Are you in a place where you wouldn't be quick to honor him unless he does something first and then you'll respond? Because at this moment, these men honor Jesus only for what they've seen in His past, not for what they hope in His future. And yet, there are going to be men who we have now who are completely etched in the stone of Scripture that we can observe for the all of eternity because His Word remains forever. And we'll know, my goodness, You finally rose up, even out of the fear that you had been pressed down and oppressed by because the religious leaders said, shut up. And at this point, you just couldn't handle it anymore. And you finally stood up and you rocked that status quo. Well, can I just say, it's time to start rocking status quo. But not just to rock it. Rocking the status quo with honoring our Lord. Well, that's the prayer we go to. And then we take communion. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank you for how you've come before us. I want to thank you for how you've spoken to us, even in these characters, on a very dismal and dark day. And yet the darkness was not because rocks are shaking, or the earth is shaking, or rocks are splitting, or veils are tearing. But at this particular moment, the reason it seems so dark is because it's so quiet. We're not hearing voices piercing the sky. At this moment it's quiet. We're not seeing the sky blackened like we did at three at between twelve and three. It's quiet, which will only provide a greater contrast for the absolute glory that is going to be exuded in the miracles you already have on the slate that we have yet to see. And we confess to you there are times where we could be easier audience for the enemy and his accusations than we could be harbingers of hope where in a moment like this we're going to be there and we're going to honor you and we're going to trust. So I pray first for the believers, those who have openly declared their allegiance to you. I pray that you would give us the faith that is necessary to stand and to, to trust where we can't see and not to lean on our own understanding but rather and always acknowledge you in its stead. And to know that you're bigger than science. You're bigger than our understanding. And regardless of what the consequences appear before us, we can trust that your word remains forever and you even honor your word above your own name. Give us that peace. Put our minds, Lord, upon those things which are good and excellent and praiseworthy. Things which are pure and noble. Let us not dwell on those things, Lord, that somehow tend to taint our faith, but rather, Lord, to lay them at your feet and trust, Lord. And let us not look back at, and see a wilderness, of gra- a graveyard of fallen dreams and expectations, but rather kindnesses and mercies where you didn't allow us to get often what we wanted that would have been to our own demise. And mounds, Glorious landmarks of where you've not only shown yourself faithful, you've done that through it all, but where you've shown yourself strong, hope beyond hope, a way out of no way, our rescue, our refuge, our Redeemer, the Lifter of us out of the pit and the lifter of our heads. So today, please, reinstill that hope that comes, Lord, at the peace and the joy of being with you. And that comes by trusting you. So let us, Lord, increase our faith And here in this room and at the sound of this voice if you're not sure if you've ever accepted the gift of Jesus Christ I'd love the privilege today of giving you that choice. I want to honor you with that choice. The question is what are you willing to do? And if you today would like to accept this gift of Jesus I'm going to pray a prayer I ask you to listen and at the end I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen and what you're saying is I agree. Let those words be my words. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. That's obvious. And you died on the cross to pay for every sin of every man. That includes mine. So you already paid my bill. But unless I choose that bill, I stand in a situation where I still account for my own guilt before you. So I accept the gift that you've paid on my stead. And yet, as that's half the story, just like you promised over and over again. You rose again on the third day after being buried like this. And in being and raising again, you've proven that even death itself could not hold you and you stand as the victorious Lord over all. And for that, I ask for you and I invite you to become the Lord of my life. Make it beautiful. Make it rich. Make it yours. Because I belong to you now. Have your way. I hand myself to you, in Jesus' name. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. You've heard us today, Lord. And now as we have communion in these last couple moments, let it be meaningful and rich to each of us, in Jesus' name. Amen.